It's Midday Magazine for Tuesday, June 20th. I'm Shelby Herbert. Last night's borough assembly meeting opened with several commenters calling on the assembly and the public of Petersburg to support plans for a new hospital. In April, the assembly approved an an extensive resolution to get the project closer to shovel-ready status. But that progress was stopped last week. With an ordinance to rezone a part of the area, the assembly and the hospital board picked to plant the new facility uh, failed before the local planning commission. Phil Hofstetter is the CEO of Petersburg's Medical Center. He came to the meeting to speak up for a new ordinance to rezone part of service area one to make way for construction. Hofstetter argued against the planning commission's claim that Petersburg residents haven't been sufficiently educated about the new hospital. He said the hospital board made plans available to the public a long time ago. This has been a painstakingly process selected from five potential sites over the past seven years. The result of numerous assembly meetings, PMC board meetings, public forums, and work sessions. This step is crucial for the future of healthcare in Petersburg. The assembly voted in favor of the ordinance with one holdout. From the very outset of the project, Assemblymember Donna Marsh has been skeptical of the borough's ability to pay for the new hospital with state and federal grants. Marsh Marsh says she agrees with the Planning Commission's recommendation. This uh, medical center design and layout is a grand and beautiful facility, but I frankly do not see how we can afford it. Not in the near future, not in the long-term future. The land being rezoned itself, I think it gobbles up a lot of residential areas, as the Planning Commission noted here. So I will not be in favor of this one. The Assembly's, the Assembly's only other item of business was a resolution to temporarily change the Assembly meeting schedule to accommodate Mayor Mark Jensen's summer gillnetting plans. It would have changed the regular meeting schedule from Mondays to Thursdays through the summer months. The schedule change did not go to a vote, with no assembly member seconding the motion. With the failure of that resolution, the next regular assembly meeting is scheduled for Monday, July 3rd. This story was edited to reflect that assembly member Marsh did not vote for a resolution to change the regular meeting schedule. Instead, she voted to, she moved to allow the resolution to go to a vote with no second. The Petersburg School Board will have its final regular meeting of the school year at 6 p.m. tonight in the middle and high school library. The board will announce five faculty resignations, including those of elementary school librarian Jill Nortvelt, Leonard, and high, uh, high school math teacher Tom Thompson. The board will also accept a donation for the special education program in honor of the late Petersburg resident William K. Newman who was also known as Swampy Creek Bill. Newman taught shop classes in the Petersburg School District for close to 20 years. He died in 2019 at the age of 83. The board will use the donation to install an awning above the ramp that extends from the Racy Stedman Elementary School cafeteria to the main playground. They'll also build a heated pathway along that route to protect students from the elements. Any remaining Funds will be used to purchase special equipment to make the preschool classroom more accessible to individuals with disabilities. 
The board will also look at an improvement plan for the elementary school. The school received a special designation from Alaska's accountability system in February. That designation is based on subpar academic performance among certain student groups. In response, a committee of Petersburg School District administrators, teachers, and parents developed a three-year plan to boost student literacy. Their plan includes new instruction techniques and opportunities for students to interact with community members. Again, Petersburg School Board will meet this evening at 6 p.m. in the middle and high school library. KFSK will broadcast that live and post the recording on our website, kfsk.org. Governor Mike Dunleavy vetoed more than $200 million from the state budget yesterday, including half of the money the legislature wanted to spend as a one-time increase in public school funding. In a press release, the governor didn't mention the $87 million cut to education funding, which is by far the largest of dozens of vetoes. His spokesman said he was unavailable for an interview. Senator Forrest Dunbar, an Anchorage Democrat, is disturbed by the loss of funds. He points out that school districts have had flat funding for six years while absorbing the major costs of inflation. We have to increase education funding. And what Dunleavy did today uh, sets back that cause, sets back education in Alaska, and likely will lead to substantial cuts to programs and perhaps increased population loss. School districts from around the state lobbied for more funding, saying that without an increase in the base in the base student allocation, they would have to cut core programs and, in the case of Anchorage, even close schools. Efforts to increase the formula funding were not successful, but the legislature did pass a one-time school funding boost of $175 million. Senator Dunbar also takes issue with the cuts coming on June 19th, today, which he sees as an affront to those yesterday, which he sees as an affront to those working to recognize Juneteenth as an important American day of remembrance of liberation. Dunbar says the Senate probably has the votes to override the cut to school funding. However, I am worried that there might not be enough House Republicans willing to override the governor's veto. Dunleavy's 46 line item vetoes include other cuts to education, such as $20 million for the UAA campus, $10 million for major school maintenance projects, $5 million for the Alaska Native Science and Engineering Program, and $3.5 million for Head Start. Outside of education, Dunleavy cut $30 million from the Community Assistance Fund, $10 million from state ferries, and several road and harbor projects. Sitka's Mount Edgecombe volcano is coming under closer scrutiny this summer as research teams follow up on the earthquake swarm which occurred under the mountain in the spring of last year. And satellite data that show the flanks of the peak steadily inflating since about 2018. While no eruption is imminent, scientists from the Alaska Geophysical Institute in Fairbanks recently spent a few days on the flanks of the crater and on surrounding beaches, collecting information which they hope sheds light on what's brewing beneath the surface. Robert Woolsey has the story in Sitka. Don't you let go. You've probably seen it a few times. Gollum and the One Ring have plunged into the lava river at the bottom of Mount Doom. And Samwise is trying to pull Frodo back before he suffers the same fate. 
Luckily, hobbits have a body chemistry more favorable to heroics inside a volcano. If it had been Aragorn or any of the other human characters in Lord of the Rings helping to destroy the ring, they might have been long gone, passed out in the high concentration of carbon dioxide gas produced in this environment. CO2 can't be smelled or seen, but a team of scientists from the Alaska Geophysical Institute knows how to detect it. Six of them spent a few days helicoptering between Sitka and Mount Edgecombe in early June, testing the soil of Kruzoff Island for CO2. I caught up with them at the Sitka airport waiting for a break in the weather. So today, hopefully, the weather is looking good, so we're hoping to make it to uh, the summit of Edgecombe today. Um, And we're hoping to measure diffuse CO2, those same CO2 measurements we've been taking along the flanks of the volcano, uh, and then... If we could get inside the crater, we'd like to take some measurements there. However, it's unclear if it's snow-free right now. Claire Puglio is a doctoral student at the University of Alaska Fairbanks under research assistant professor Tarsilo Girona. Girona has a theory that low-temperature thermal anomalies detected by satellite data suggest increased activity in magma that may be a precursor to an eruption. The same CO2 that would make a volcano inhospitable to Aragorn could possibly be warming the flanks of Mount Edgecombe. One of the hypotheses we have to to understand those signals is that the gas that is moving from the mama source to the surface is producing this warming in the surface. Girona and Pulio are two of the six members of the team from the Alaska Geophysical Institute studying gas emissions on Mount Edgecombe. The project is funded by NASA as part of a program for early career scientists. They're tackling the problem on two fronts, in the air and on the land, or better said, in the land. Carlo Cardellini is from the University of Perugia in Italy. He's helped develop the method for collecting gas from the soil using a device called an accumulation chamber. But he's got a slightly more flavorful metaphor. And we place a chamber on the top of the soil. It's like a cooking pot. And we leave leave the concentration of carbon dioxide increase inside the chamber. And the rate of increasing is something that is linked to the amount of gas that is passing from the soil to the atmosphere. So we are catching this increase and we can compute how much gas is escaping from the soil. Cardellini uses an infrared sensor that continuously measures the concentration of CO2 in the cooking pot, if you will. But he also collects samples to take back and study in the lab. CO2 produced by magma will have a different isotopic signature than CO2 produced by organic decomposition. And there is a lot of organic decomposition on the slopes of Mount Edgecombe, which are primarily wetlands. For the bigger picture, you've got to be airborne. Taryn Lopez is a volcanologist with the Alaska Volcano Observatory. While the others are sampling the slopes of the crater, she'll be overhead doing what is called a gas flight. Some gases exolve, which means they form bubbles really deep, um, such as CO2, where things like water and SO2, which are common volcanic gases, exolve very shallow. What we're looking for is the composition of the gases. If we see gases and if we see the composition, we can tell if the magma is deep or shallow. This is the first morning of several that the team has been in Sitka, that the rim of the Mount Edgecombe crater is visible, 3,200 feet above Sitka Sound, and the helicopter pilot is ready to fly. Tarsilo Girona tells me that all the data and information collected by the Geophysical Institute team will be published in several papers and shared with the Alaska Volcano Observatory, 
which is sending its own team to Mount Edgecombe later this summer. And hopefully, Girona said, we can better understand how the volcano works. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Anna Ellers is now Dr. Anna Ellers, an honor bestowed upon her this spring by the University of Alaska Southeast. She says it's one event in a series of many that helped her do what she loves most, keep Chilkat weaving alive. The Juno elder says recognition from the doctorate is already helping her secure future projects. As Rhonda McBride reports, she's working on her biggest blanket yet. Anna Eller's love affair with Tlingit weaving began in downtown Juneau as a small child when she saw her uncle in a July 4th parade wearing a Chilkat blanket with fringe that seemed to have a life of its own. The fringe was very flowing and graceful. The colors and the design, my little four-year-old eyes just fell in love with it. And I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life was to make those. It wasn't until 20 years later that she shared her dream with a state lawmaker while working at the state capitol. When Ellers explained she would have to take a year off from work to learn to weave, something she couldn't afford to do, a group of Alaska Native lawmakers got together and wrote a bill to give her a grant equivalent to a year's salary. Governor Jay Hammond signed it into law just in time for Ellers to work under Jenny Clunat then in her 90s, and a master at using mountain goat wool and cedar bark fibers to weave, knowledge that is precious because it was almost lost. Jenny Quinnott said we were not to be stingy with the knowledge that she gave us. Advice Ellers took to heart. She went on to teach and mentor more than 300 weavers. She also donated a lot of her work, pieces that typically take a year or more to weave. But Ellers discovered that gifting her art turned out to be an act of personal healing, that when she shares it with others, she says pain in her wrists from carpal tunnel syndrome mysteriously disappears. And it was in this spirit of generosity that Ellers was recognized at the University of Southeast Alaska during its graduation ceremony this year. I'm honored to present Anna Ellers with the Honorary Doctorate of Fine Arts. Congratulations, Dr. Ellers. (laughs) Thank you. Dr. Ellers gives credit for her new degree to her uncle, Roy Brown. She says the memory of how he wore his regalia with such dignity in that 1959 parade continues to inspire her today. Ellers also thanked all the people and organizations that have awarded her fellowships and grants over the years to help keep Chilkat weaving and its designs, which reflect the identity of clan and tribe, alive. But at 68, she's not done yet and says she's begun work on the blanket of her dreams. The project I'm doing is the biggest Chilkat blanket in the world. The design is top secret until it goes on a national tour in December 2025. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.